Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Gaudete in Domino Semper, Iterum Dico Gaudete. That's the introit for this third Sunday in Advent, taken from Philippians 4, encouraging us partway through this season of waiting, of working, and of preparation, of self-examination, and of repentance. The prospect of the coming judge of all to be like a refiner's fire should rightly spur us to soberly looking at ourselves. But Gaudete Sunday also reminds us that in Christ, justice and mercy have kissed, that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and that his wrath is only for a moment, but his favor lasts for life. Today, we see a figure in our gospel passage who exemplifies the recognition that the advent of the Lord is both fearful and unspeakably wonderful. He's a figure who calls out the corruption that he sees around him in the most severe language, but also announces with rejoicing the ultimate sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the entire world. John the Baptist is called by Jesus himself, the greatest of men born of women. He's also a perfect example for us to meditate on in the season of Advent, and that for two reasons. One, he connects and situates the advent of Jesus within the entire progressive narrative of all the scriptures. And two, he shows us what preparing for Jesus' advent should look like. The first advent of Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. It was planned. It was foretold. It was looked for. And importantly, it was needed. There's a great advent carol called, This is the Truth Sent from Above, which recounts in simple parochial English the story of Adam's fall, its consequences on all of Adam's posterity, and the giving of a promise that we would all be redeemed or set free by God's Son. And that, in a nutshell, is the story of all the scriptures from Genesis to the last book of the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi, whose name literally means my messenger, is the last of the prophets, sometimes called the seal of the prophets by the church fathers. And it's his prophecy that Jesus quotes regarding John in today's gospel. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which will prepare thy way before thee. So in Hebrew, that verse literally says, Behold, I send Malachi, my messenger, before thy face, which has led some to think that Malachi wasn't actually the proper name of the prophet himself, but was more like a title. Uh, Either way, whether that was the prophet's name or his title, he was only pointing toward, forward in time, toward the final prophet who would immediately precede the coming of the Lord. In fact, this coming prophet would be more than a prophet, as Jesus says of John, because he would not only tell of the coming of the Lord, he would witness it. John would come in the spirit of Isaiah, as Jesus also said whose prophecy was the most far-sighted and important regarding the coming of the Messiah. But John would also be the true Malachi, as it, is, as it was, the true messenger preceding the Messiah, coming with the power of an angel, as the church fathers say, because angel, angelos in Greek, just means messenger. 
So the Septuagint Greek translation of Malachi uses that word, behold, I will send my angelos, my messenger, before thy face. That's why sometimes you'll see icons, especially in the Byzantine tradition of John the Baptist with angel wings. So John was a powerful figure, you know, summing up all the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. The grace that he had for his task and the knowledge that he obviously had of the prophets meant that when John saw Jesus approaching him on the banks of the Jordan River where John was baptizing the people, he recognized without a shadow of a doubt the Lamb of God, the suffering servant from Isaiah's prophecy, the coming Lord in Malachi's prophecy. He saw the one who was promised to come, who would be like Moses, who was called the great prophet like Moses, leading the people out of bondage and delivering to them the words of life. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? He saw the new Joshua, or Yeshua in Aramaic, which is Jesus' name, who was to lead the people into the true land promised to be flowing with abundance. He saw the promised son of David to be anointed, both to lead the nation of Israel, but also to gather in all the nations of the world into Israel. John saw exactly who Jesus was, not only because he had the grace to recognize him, but also because he already knew the scriptures and already had a conception of these roles and knew the promise of a coming figure to unite all of those roles and to fulfill them. So why then do we see in today's gospel passage John sending his disciples out to ask Jesus whether he was that one or if they should be expecting someone else. Did John really succumb to doubts in prison after he had so boldly proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God, to baptize him and to see the anointing of the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus, to hear the voice of the Father in heaven so definitively affirm, this is my beloved Son? Is John now in doubt? This is what St. Hilary of Poitiers says about that. Did so great a prophet not know his God? As precursor, he had foretold that he was to come. As prophet, he had recognized him standing in their midst. As confessor, he had venerated him before men. Did error creep into so profound and varied knowledge? The subsequent testimony of the Lord concerning John does not permit us to think so. St. Hilary, with many other of the fathers, believes John to be convinced, even in prison, of who Jesus is. So why send his disciples out with that question? If you notice, in the passage itself, it's only after John heard in prison the works of the Lord that he sent his disciples to Jesus. And the answer Jesus gives the disciples of John about who he was, again, was simply an inventory of his works. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So when the disciples would have returned to John with this answer, it wouldn't have been any new information because John had already heard the works of the Lord. And beyond that, John already knew by grace who Jesus was, just recognizing him. But what this would have done for John's disciples was given them a chance to learn both from Jesus and John that these works of Jesus were in direct fulfillment of the role and the works of the Messiah as prophesied by Isaiah. Quote, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's Isaiah 35, 5. 
The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, gospel, to the poor. That's Isaiah 61, 1. John sent his disciples out for their own sake to demonstrate to them that the one who John wasn't even worthy to touch his sandals had certainly come, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. John was transitioning his disciples from being his disciples to Jesus' disciples. So John becomes a kind of capstone on all of the prophets, the wisdom literature, the Torah, essentially all of the scriptures which the Jews had led by John's demonstration and proclamation to Jesus. That's why in Advent we remember and visualize the lineage, both biological and spiritual, of Jesus to help us recall the narrative planned by and executed by God to save not only the people of the Hebrews, but the people of the whole world. In Advent, this uh, imagery of the Jesse tree showing the either direct lineage of Jesus, as we have quoted both in Matthew and Luke, or the spiritual lineage of Jesus showing the, the prophets and the people leading up to him. We do this because we situate the advent of Jesus within a family tree. Again, he didn't just enter into the world out of nowhere. He did this in the middle of a story, a grand narrative that God had been planning since the foundation of the world. And John shows us that. John links us to that whole story by being the ultimate prophet and more than a prophet. He fulfills all of the prophecy by leading us directly to Christ and telling us, behold. But John does more than that even for us today. He also shows us how to prepare ourselves to receive the Lord when he comes again in glory. He tells us to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. When tax collectors came to him and asked, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And when soldiers asked him, he said to them, Extort no money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. He shows us not to be a reed shaken by the wind, i.e. someone blown around by the changing winds and spirits of our age. And he shows us not to be people in too soft clothing, i.e. people overly concerned with comfort or overly secure in our worldly status and achievements. So don't hang out too much in king's houses. We also have our roles to fulfill in telling others about the coming of the Lord about both his true authority and ability to judge the world, the scary part, but also his power to save it. In order to do all these things well, though, you know, we need to also be familiar with the scriptures as John was and willing to be led by the Holy Spirit into desert places sometimes. And of course, ultimately, willing to give our own heads up as John did. So let's look to John today and the rest of this season as a powerful example of how we can all prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts and in the world. And when we do see him as he is, exclaim with confidence and rejoicing, Gaudete, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.